Brandywine Grace, grace and peace to you guys this morning. Hey, I walked in this uh, Saturday morning to get ready to preach, and I saw the chairs were set up, and Rich was here doing sound, and I walked in, I said, what's this set up for? What's going on? And when I walked to the front, there were pictures of many of you on the seats, and there was a sign that really encouraged me. Uh, we love, miss you, and are praying for you. And guys, I just want to thank you for that. You don't know how much uh, this season has taken its toll on me spiritually. And to, to read that note and actually to see your faces taped to the chairs brought great encouragement to my soul this morning. So it was great to see. It made me think about you. And I'm grateful to whoever orchestrated that. So thanks for doing it. A couple things before we get into God's Word. The first is, I want to thank you, everybody. We did better on this survey that we recently did than we've ever done. This, this survey, I think we had like 106, 110 responses to the survey. We just went over them as a Sunday morning production team. We reviewed everything that we were learning from that and are going to try to implement some of those things. One of the things we learned from the 106 people that responded, there was an even split between people who liked the service time at 10.30 or even a little bit later, and those that would like the service time a little bit earlier. So one decision that we've made, and the, the, the result of that feedback, is we're going to, we usually do a 9 and 11 service, we're going to split the difference, do a 10 a.m. service for as long as we, we need to be in, in this type of situation where we're recording the services. So starting next week, we'll go to a 10 a.m. Uh, release on YouTube premiere, and then there's more changes that we're going to seek to make in the coming months as a result of your feedback. We started a Sunday morning production team when COVID hit, something we should have started a long time ago, but people are working really hard on that team. Sarah is Sarah Greenslade, project management, Rich overseeing sound, Dave, Dana overseeing the video and multimedia, uh, Tom Zeitler, director of worship, Jay Ross as executive pastor. That team has been working really hard to try to create services through this time, and I'm very grateful to them. I know you guys are as well. All right, let's pray uh, and get to work. Open up your Bibles to Romans 5, chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning, but I want to pray and ask that God would bless us, bless you, bless me, and the re-speaking, the preaching of his word. Lord, I pray, Lord, you know how challenging it has been for me to preach into a camera, to pre preach into an empty auditorium. Lord, it's not the way preaching is intended to be. And yet we're thankful for technology. But Lord, I pray that you would take by your Spirit this Word that has been preached and apply it to our hearts and that you would ignite something in the hearts of those that are listening that they would know something of your love for them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So you're in Romans 5, chapter 5. We're going to read that in just a second. There's a video clip that maybe you've seen that's been circulating. It's a great video to watch as we think about Father's Day coming up. And the video is of, of a, a dad and about a seven, eight, nine-year-old boy that they are, they're at the baseball field, and it's totally empty except for them. And the dad has a bucket of baseballs, and he's just throwing them to the son. And the son's all dressed up in his baseball uniform, and he's waiting for the pitches. And so the dad throws a pitch, 
and, and the sun is standing there and he cracks it and you see the ball take off and the camera just follows the ball, follows the ball, and you see the ball actually leave the park. It's, it's, he's hit probably his first home run ever. And the video, which is so precious, then shows the father just gets so hype. He's so excited. The boy takes off running around the bases, and the dad just starts jumping. Yeah, 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 let's go, let's go, let's go. And he is hyping this kid and celebrating as the kid runs around the bases for a prolonged period of time. The boy finally reaches home plate. His dad meets him at home plate, picks him up, carries him back down, back to the pitcher's mound, saying to him in his ear, you did it, you did it, you you did it. You did it. Love that kind of stuff. It's a great video. You should look it up and watch it. Commenting on that video, though, Anthony Bradley, who is a professor and an author from King's College, made a comment. He used that video, and then he made a comment on it. This was his commentary. If every boy in America had a dad like this, who was his number one fan and celebrated him as his beloved son, it would create, Anthony Bradley says, an unemployment crisis among law enforcement, social work, mental health professionals, and divorce lawyers. The power of a father's love for his children. What a force for good is the power of love. And, and even more so, that's just an earthly father. When we consider our heavenly father, when we consider God, what a force for good. What a number, what innumerable number of benefits come to us as the result of God's fatherly love for us. And yet, so many of us, church, we walk through life not having a regular awareness of God's love for us. We walk through life, oftentimes ignorant and not aware of the Father's incredible love for us. It's just true that our natural inclinations, our natural intuitions about God are often distorted. We have an inaccurate view of who he is. We have this tendency to think of God in a way that is not actually as the scriptures describe him. We have this distorted view of God that he's primarily watching over us, keeping account, and judging us. We have this tendency to think that he's displeased with us, that he's putting up with us, but not really liking us. And our natural intuitions about God are so far off the mark. Dane Ortland has written a book called Gentle and Lowly. It's a book about Jesus and his love for us. And he tells in this book that never once in, in all of Scripture do we find an occasion where God was provoked to love or provoked to mercy. Rather, we do see instances of Scripture where we read that God is provoked to anger. God's anger requires provocation. 
God's love is, is pent up and ready to bust forth, to gush forth. It needs no provocation. We, though, are just the opposite, right? In Hebrews 10.24, it tells us that we should provoke one another, stir one another up, provoke, prompt, try to get each other to love one another. But there's never a scripture where we're told that we should be provoked to anger. Why? Because it's natural for us. Our natural inclination is to be provoked to anger. An unnatural inclination is to be provoked towards love. That's not true for God. The Bible is one incredibly long, massive attempt to deconstruct your wrongful, natural intuitions about God and who He is and to reconstruct in its place an accurate picture of God. And one of the things that I want us to see is in this, this attribute of God is His love for His people. The fall into sin entrenched into our minds dark thoughts about God and we need the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus the one true light, the Savior of the world, to shine into the darkness of our minds and hearts, giving us an accurate portrayal and perception of who God is and what He's really like. When we consider the wisdom of God, we're seeing something of God's mind. When we consider the power of God, we're seeing something of God's hand, His arm. When we consider the Word of God, we're, seeing, we're considering or seeing something of God's mouth. But when we consider the love of God, we're looking into God's heart. Let's look into God's heart together this morning. Romans 5, verse 5. I'm going to read the preceding verses, 1 through 4, but we're going to focus on verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, Brandywine Grace. Therefore, Paul writes to the Romans, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because, and this is the verse we're going to focus on, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me summarize for you what I think Paul's main point is with this passage and particularly this verse 5. Christians, that's anyone who's put their faith and hope in, in, in Christ, or trust in Christ. Christians should live in the continual enjoyment. Christians should live in the enjoyment of a strong and abiding sense of God's love for them. You, Christian, you, Brandywine Grace, you should live in the enjoyment of a strong and abiding sense of God's love for you. 
This is what God has called us to as Christians. We're to live. We should be joyful. We should be living in the enjoyment of God's strong and abiding sense of His love. All of God's great benefits to us are grounded in God's unbounded love for us. All of God's great benefits, which we derive many, His benefits to us are grounded, are are founded in God's unbounding love for us. To know God's love is what leads to true joy and true happiness. If you're listening to this video and you're longing, you, you were made with a longing in your soul to be truly joyful, to be truly happy. And if you're sitting here saying, I'd love to have that, I long for that, you need to understand God's love. To know God's love is to know true happiness, to know true joy. It's not the privilege of a favored few. It is to be the normal part of the ordinary experience of every Christian. So church, we need to ask ourselves, are we living in the enjoyment of a strong and abiding sense of God's love for you right now, right here, right now, today, tomorrow, this week? What would happen? What would happen? What could happen if we lived with an awareness of God's outpoured love towards us? Church, I'll tell you what would happen. Nothing less than a revival. Nothing less than a revival in our hearts, in our families, in our marriages, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our towns, in our nation, in the world. Revival happens when Christians live in a, with a sense with the, of the enjoyment of God's strong and abiding love for them. How are you doing at that church? How are we doing at this? I want us to know this. I want me to know this more. God's love, as Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, his love surpasses knowledge. His love is infinite in its breadth infinite in its depth, infinite in its height, infinite in its length. It's like hidden treasure. It's like this multifaceted diamond, that the most incredible diamond you could ever see, the most incredible treasure or jewel you could ever look at. And God's love has so many shining, beautiful facets like a diamond. We're going to look at three facets of God's love today from Romans 5, chapter 5. We're talking one half of one verse. And we're going to see three amazing, brilliant facets of God's love. Let me tell you what they are. God's love is lavish. God's love is ongoing. And God's love is available. It's lavish. His love is ongoing. And His love is available. Let me show you where I get that from the Scriptures. The first thing we see in chapter 5, or the first point I want to make, is he says God's love has been poured. Poured is what I want to focus on. Poured into our hearts. This is where I get the word lavish. God's word, some translations say it's been shed abroad in our hearts. Some translations say poured out into our hearts or poured into our hearts. Literally, you could say God's love has been dumped into our hearts. It's the same word used when Luke writes about the Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit 
in the book of Acts, he speaks of the outpouring of the Spirit. That's the same word as the outpouring of God's love for his people. It's a free flow. It indicates that it just, it's, a, it's like Niagara Falls. It's just flowing. God's love is flowing towards you, and it's a large quantity of his love that's flowing towards you. God is not stinting. He's not miserly. He does, he gives generously. When he gives, he gives like no one gives. This is an unstinting lavishness. This is him just pouring out a tremendous amount of his love an infinite amount of His love into our hearts. God has flooded our hearts with His love. God has inundated our hearts with His love. God has backed the a pick a, a dump truck from heaven that is filled with His love, and He has He has dumped that love into our hearts. He has overflowed our hearts with His love. Church, you feeling me on this? He loves us. And He has lavishly poured out His love on us. The word used for love is actually a different Greek word used. It's a word called agape. When Paul was writing to the Romans, he realized that God's love is so significant, so unique, so tremendous that he didn't want anyone to confuse the love we have for God or the love we have for one another with God's love for us because his love is so tremendous, so amazing, so incredible that he said, i got to use a different word. So when he uses God's love towards us, he uses the word agape. When he uses our love towards him, he tends to use a different word. Eugene Peterson commenting on this verse. He says, We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. We can't round up enough containers. When I was growing up, we, we had moments of where we experienced uh, just really being poor and not having a lot of money. And at one point, we really needed a new roof. And the house, when we would dread if we got a heavy downpour, because there were so many spots in the house that it was leaking. I can remember it would be like a mad dash for this cabinet in our house where we contained all, where, where we had all of these containers. And then we would make a mad dash throughout the house, especially the kitchen, but setting these containers up to try to hold all of the water that was flooding into our homes. God's love is flooding into your heart. He has poured His love into your heart. So much so that it is filled to overflowing and there's not enough containers. You couldn't find enough containers to fill up God's love for you. God's love is turning the diamond. It's lavish. And when we know that God's love is lavish, that's one facet of His love described here. When we know that God's love is lavish, that should stimulate us to live in the enjoyment of a strong and abiding sense of His lavish love for us. But it's not just lavish. Just from this verse, we see that His love is also ongoing. Ongoing. God's love has been poured. 
This is not past tense. God's love poured, like past tense poured. He poured it once, and that's it. He ain't pouring no more. That's not the grammar of this has been. Has been. This is the, uh, I consulted my wife on this. Amy's an expert in grammar at our house. This is present perfect tense. It has been poured. What this means is we took a long walk. We took two laps around the block, and she was trying to explain to me perfect tense. Perfect tense is an action in the past that has ongoing implications. An action in the past that has ongoing implications for the present. J.I. Packer would say it's a settled state, the settled state consequent upon a completed action. So God poured out his love into our hearts in such a way that though he has flooded our hearts with his love, he fills them now. Do you see this? It's something that has taken place and the implications of it are ongoing. God's love towards you. He's filled your heart and he keeps on filling it with his love poured out for you. It's like, the lot, it's like you've won the lottery, guys. It's like this. I, I don't play the lottery often at all. I don't know if I've ever played it. Maybe I should. But uh, if you, it's like if I played it one time, I played the Powerball. Let's, let's just say it was the, 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 the number uh, that it had gotten to was just astronomic. And I get a call. And they say to me on the phone, you have won, perfect tense, you have won the lottery. So when they, when they say you have won the lottery, what, the next question that everyone should have is, what's the implication? What's the present implication of that? You have won the lottery, Mr. Lynch. And? And for the rest of your life, every month, you are going to receive a check for $100,000. That's like crazy, right? You have won the lottery, and the ongoing implications of that are $100,000 for the rest, for every month for the rest of your life. In other words, when what we have here is divine perfect tense, or divine, yes, divine perfect tense, divine present perfect. God has poured out his love in abundance, but he keeps filling your heart up with that love. It's the realization, church, it's the realization, and maybe you're having that right now as you're listening to this sermon. The realization that you long for something that, to, to satisfy you, but you've never found it. It's like you have this sense in which there must be another world. I was made for another world. I, was made, I can't find deep satisfaction here. I must have been made for something else. I must have been made for someone else. And then coming to the realization that, yes, you, you were made for another world. You were made for heaven. But it's almost like you get to the, to the, to the edge of the, the land and you stand and you see this vast ocean like the Atlantic Ocean between you and heaven and you realize I was made for that world but I can't get there. The good news of the gospel is it recognizes no, you can't. You can't get there. So God, build a raft of cross. 
He came to get you. And you climb into that raft and you sail towards heaven with Him with His love poured out in your heart. And He promises that this experience you're having with Me will never, ever end. We are headed towards eternity together. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Church, you feeling God's love for you. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. So we're spinning this diamond of God's love and it's got these facets from Romans 5. It's lavish. Poured. Abundantly. And it's ongoing. That means our hearts. He's continually wanting to fill our hearts with His love. And that lavish facet of His love and the ongoing facet of His love are what help us to live in the enjoyment of His strong and abiding, lavish, ongoing love for you. There's one more thing though. I said there's three facets. It's lavish, it's ongoing, it's available. It's available. Where do I get that word? I get that word from Romans 5.5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the agency of the third person of of the Godhead. Through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So so God's love is readily available to us through the regular active ministry of the Holy Spirit. When God saved you, He filled you with His Spirit. And one of the jobs of the Spirit is to make you aware of the knowledge of God's lavish and ongoing, unending love for you. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. Church, you feeling that? Are you experiencing that? We need some of that. I need more of that. I need more of the Spirit's ordinary work, just the ordinary work of the Spirit, filling me and making me aware of of the knowledge of God's love for me and for you. God's love is available to us through the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit gives His love to us in abundance. This is what the Scriptures depict as the normal yet glorious Christian life. Normal in the sense that God is loving. He's not just waiting for you to achieve a certain level of merit before He pours it out. His love is always pouring out His grace towards you. It's normal, and yet it's glorious. You might say the Spirit's work is ordinary, yet extraordinary in the life of a Christian. Knowledge of God's poured out love for us is available. But why is it, church, that so many of us seem to live without a deep enjoyment and awareness of God's love that's available to us? It's like like it's available, but we don't take advantage of of its availability through the gift of the Spirit given to us to to make us aware, to give us a knowledge, a daily knowledge of God's love for us. The fact that His love is available means that it's available through the Spirit, which means that we should pray daily that the Holy Spirit, you should pray daily 
You should pray every day that the Holy Spirit, you should pray continually, as Paul writes in other places, pray continually that the Holy Spirit would fill you, would instill you with knowledge of God's love for you. That's a prayer we should pray every day. Does that sound boring? Does that sound like a a habit you can't imagine doing? Does that sound too simple? This is what we should pray, church. When's the last time you prayed that the Spirit of God would fill you with an awareness of God's lavish, ongoing, and available love for you? Think about it. What ministry do we most prize when we think of the Holy Spirit? What ministry of the Holy Spirit do we most value? Church, I think that for many of us, myself included, we are preoccupied with extraordinary and the sporadic moments of the Spirit's powerful work in our lives. We're preoccupied with extraordinary. And we neglect something that the New Testament refers to as quite ordinary. God's love poured into our hearts through the work of the Spirit available every day. The ordinary work of the Holy Spirit is to fill you with a sense of peace, to fill you with a sense of joy, to fill you with a sense of hope, to fill you with a sense of love as He pours out His love into our hearts. Revival. Let's think for a moment. What is revival? We want revival. I believe there may be revival coming in our land as a result of all that we've been experiencing and even the persecution that the church that, that, that Satan is doing in the church. The, 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 what I can feel right now as I try to preach into a camera and as we try to lead the church into a brighter tomorrow. When we feel these things, we're aware of the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's, the, the Satan, the Satan's spiritual warfare. And so we long for this revival. We long for revival. But what is revival? You know what the revival is? It's the work of God to restore. To restore. To restore in an extraordinary manner the standards of the Christian life and experience that the New Testament set forth as quite ordinary. Entirely ordinary. Revival is really an extraordinary result. The extraordinary result of a, of a lot of little ordinary habits of discipline. This is how revival happens. Revival happens when a group of people become aware of God's love poured out into their hearts and they make it their habit to pray that God would increase their knowledge of His love. And as He does that, He fills their hearts with His love and they begin to grow in their love for Jesus. They want to obey Jesus. They're aware of sins they commit against Jesus. They want to live in purity before Jesus. They're concerned Jesus' mission is their mission, so they're concerned about lost and dying people. They're concerned about the people in their neighborhood and in their families. And they start to live with a greater intensity, an intense love for God and an intense love for God their neighbor that's what revival is and it happens when the spirit of god in a regular way in a very ordinary way reminds you of god's great love for you poured out into your hearts lavishly ongoing and available to you 
I'm finishing up a great book right now called Atomic Habits. I know I've told you guys about it before. You should read it. James Clear wrote it. And he tells a great illustration in this book about the British cycling team. In 2003, the British cycling team was, was coming off of like a hundred year, uh, just bottom of the pit. They were the worst of the worst. And they hired this new guy in 2003. They hadn't won a gold medal in the Olympics in cycling in over 100 years. They had never, ever won cycling's grandest event, the Tour de France. So they hire this guy. They were so bad when they hired him, that there were bike companies that refused to sell their bikes to the Brits because they were afraid their sales would suffer. If the Brits ride those bikes, they ain't no good. That's how bad it was. And they hire this guy, and he comes in there and he brings a whole new philosophy. And what he starts to do is he he uses this phrase, we're going to improve We're going to see the aggregation. We're going to see improvement, but we're going to see it through the aggregation, the accumulation of small gains. So he came in and said, guys, we're going to pay attention to small things. We're going to create small little habits, and we're going to do them over and over and over and over again. And we're going to look for improvement in 1% increases. And his belief was if we can set habits into our daily lives that create improvement over a long stretch of time, we'll accumulate results. Just small changes. They redesigned their bike seats. They rubbed rubbing alcohol on their tires so that they would grip better. He, he preached and, and taught the importance of sleep. And so they designed, they had engineers design pillows for them, mattresses for the team so that they could maximize their rest. They found the massage gels that, that created recovery. Diet was extremely important to them. Their training, the timing of their training, how hard they went, how soft they went, rest, all these things, these little things that sometimes the team would look at him and say, how can that make a difference? He even painted the, 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 uh, the carrier or the, the trailer that carried the bikes. They painted the inside white so that they could see flecks of dust that would get into their gears and hinder their performance. Five years later, after accumulating these small changes, five years later, they went to the Olympics and they completely dominated the Olympics. They won 60% of the gold medals. The following Olympics, four years later, they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. And during that time period where he was the coach, five out of six years in a row, they, they had a British rider who won the Tour de France. What's his point? It's easy to overestimate the importance of of a defining moment, and underestimate the value of small, ordinary improvements on a daily basis. It's easy to overestimate the importance of one mountaintop experience with God. And I'm not belittling them. May He pour out more of those in our lives. But it's easy to overestimate one defining moment, one outpouring of the Spirit, and underestimate the value of small, 
ordinary improvements on a daily basis. We underestimate, church, a prayer like this. Lord, I'm up today. Holy Spirit, I'm praying that You would fill me afresh so that I would know in a fresh way today, yesterday's over, I need to know today knowledge of Your love. I need to know its height, its depth, its, its, its length, its width. I need to know God's love. Would you fill me with a fresh awareness of God's love for me? If we were to do that, church, I believe that ordinary prayer, prayed very simply on a, in a daily basis, could result in an extraordinary revival in our hearts and in our city and in our communities. What would it look like? What would it look like for you to create a daily, very ordinary habit of prayer Asking God to make you aware of His love for you. Imagine. Imagine with me. What could happen? So church, I want to ask you a question. If God's love really is lavish, poured out, dumped out, and it really is ongoing, and it really is available to us every day, every moment, through the Spirit of God, if that's really true, and we believe that it is, then there are some questions that arise. If this is God's love for me, I want you to ask these questions. I'm asking them of myself. You ask these questions of yourself. If God's love is really this way, poured out lavishly, ongoing, continual experience of His love and available to me every day through the work of the Holy Spirit, then why do I grumble so much? Why am I discontent? Why am I so anxious when difficult circumstances come my way. If God's love really is the way we're describing it, why am I so distrustful? Why am I so fearful? Why am I so depressed? If this is truly God's love, if this is truly a description of God's love for me, then why do my affections for God grow so cool? Why do my desire my desires to obey Him, which is an expression of our love for Him, and to love others. Why does that seem so cool at times? Why, church, if this is His love for us, are our loyalties so divided? Why is it that God doesn't have all of our hearts? And we can further apply this when we remind ourselves that the Scriptures teach us. John wrote in his letters that God is love. And he established that so that he might make a very important ethical point. And he said this in 1 John 4, since God so loved us, since He's been so lavish, and, so, and His love is so ongoing, and His love is 
is uh, so available to us because of the way God has poured out his love, we ought also to love one another. So church, I, end with, I want to ask another question. Could an observer, could someone observing your life, could they observe from the quality and the degree of your love for others, your love for your spouse, your love for your kids, your love for your neighbors, your love for your co-workers, your love for your extended family, your love for the community that God has knit you into. Could someone observing your life and the quality and the depth and the degree of your love for others, could they learn anything at all about God's love for you? Church, we need to meditate on these things. Examine yourself. I'll end with this story. Imagine God sitting in his home. He's he's the father of the house and he's working. He's working and trying to get things done. You can imagine this. And the kids are outside at God's house. God's kids are outside and they have built... Something really fun is the warm weather hits. They've built a slip and slide. And they're outside playing. Now I wonder, I'm going to present two views of God. I wonder which one is the one that you would hold. God is inside looking at the kids. He's trying to get his work done. And he sees they've rolled out the plastic. They've sprayed it down with water. And all he can think, or he's distracted by, they're going to kill the grass. I just fertilized. I just, I just put the weed killer down. They're going to kill the grass right there. Or maybe he's like, they're laughing so loud. Don't they know I'm in here trying to get something done? They know how busy I am. They know how um, I have so many things to take care of. Why can't they keep it down? Or maybe he looks out the window and wonders, what are they doing wrong? They're laughing too hard. Maybe they're, they're up to no good. Or maybe he has things like this, like, I wonder when my kids will grow up and be as serious as I am. Is that your view of God? Or maybe your view of God is something like this. Maybe he's got a says, man, I've been working all day. He sets his stuff down and he runs downstairs and, and runs and surprises the kids. He just takes a, he just runs and he jumps on that slip and slide and he hits it hard. God being the kind of person that not only adds to their enjoyment, but, but brings more enjoyment. He's the kind of God maybe that, do you imagine him this way? That he goes to Dairy Queen, gets blizzards for everybody, and then comes to the slip and side and says, listen, everybody come up here, get some blizzards, and then we're gonna, I'm going to make it even bigger. I'm going to make it even better. Is he the hype man of the house, bringing joy wherever he goes? Which picture of God comes into your mind? Let me read this once again. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Which picture, church, better represents that God? I'll let you decide.